I saw a sports highlight clip the other day, and it was on a relay race where one team, I mean, obviously there's a number of teams running, but one team, they were doing pretty well until one racer had to pass the baton to the next. And then these, te these teammates just sadly jumbled up the whole entire thing. I mean, I never ran in a relay race, at least with passing batons professionally, so I don't know exactly what happened. I'm sure there's a lot of mechanics and details that go involved in that, that go into passing the baton. But the new runner started running, and maybe the one behind, you know, just trying to miss the target, or maybe the person who, who started running the new racer just didn't hold out their hand in the right way, and then the whole thing just fell apart, and you could just see the frustration on both of the runners' faces, especially the one who was passing off the baton. And in their frustration, you know, they just kind of stop, and all the other racers go ahead, and then they have to decide to walk back to the handoff point, and then try it all over again. It was just, it was just a disaster, and it highlighted the need for a good handoff, the passing of the baton. What is the proper way to do it? And what are the consequences if you get it wrong? What would an experienced racer tell the newer runner, the one that is receiving the baton? Now when it comes to a relay race, I have no idea. But when it comes to church leadership and pastoral leadership, we see today firsthand a handoff. The book that we begin today which is found uh, there in the Bibles in 2 Timothy, page 995, if you're using one of the black Bibles there underneath the chairs. We see firsthand this handoff, and we witness the passing of the baton from one generation to the next. In 2 Timothy here, we read of the older and aging Apostle Paul, giving his final encouragement to his son in the faith, Timothy. This letter is personal, it is intimate, as any last letter would be. I mean, just imagine yourself, right? If, you're, if you feel like you're nearing the close of your lifetime, right? And you're writing not just to a church in general, let's say like the book of Ephesians or the letter of Ephesians, but instead you're writing to a trusted friend, a dear son in the faith, right? You, it's going to be intimate, it's going to be personal. And here in this letter, it's a window into the soul of the author. It's revealing what Paul found to be of first importance. And it's revealing of what he thought Timothy should keep as first importance. I hope that as we begin to look at Paul's second letter to Timothy, we remember that this letter was not just written to Timothy and the church there in Ephesus, the church to be pastoring. But because this is the word of God, I pray that we remember that this is for us today. This is the word of God. We know that it is useful for life and doctrine. It contains everything we need for life and doctrine. And in fact, it is useful for us today. As Paul writes about what he keeps of first importance and what Timothy ought to keep as the same, so he instructs the modern day reader, so he instructs us as well. He's a fantastic example of what we all should be living for and aiming for in our own lives as we go from this land to the next. Look there at the book of 2 Timothy. Let's go ahead and read verses 1 to 18 of chapter 1. 1 to 18. We're going to focus on 1 to 7, but uh, we'll read through 18. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, 
according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve as did my ancestors with a clear conscience as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first in your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor of being his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began, and which now has been manifested in the appearing of our faith in Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality life through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells within us, guard the good deposit and trust in You are aware that all who are in Asia turn away from me, among whom are for jealousy. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you, you well know all the service of at Ephesus. The first couple verses, we see what Paul's life is all about. Point number one, what Paul's life is all about. We see a summary of what his life is all about there in verses 1 and 2. I'll go ahead and reread those. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This is a, a standard introduction here. You have number one, the guy who's writing it, his name is Paul. Number two, you have the recipient there, a man named Timothy, as well as the church, if you know that these letters were to be read in public. And then you have number three, the greeting, right? But but even though that this uh, verses one and two are standard, this introduction is standard, it is so full of meaning and significance. Writing with some awareness of the fact that this would be his last letter, so he writes these words once again. From the letter itself, we gain a good understanding of the situation, right? Just imagine, just like if you were to write a letter to your loved one, right? And you're talking about your own situation, what's going on, you also want to address him with his particular situation, right? This is exactly the same. It's exactly the same as Paul writes here to Timothy. We know from the letter that Paul is clearly in prison. You look over there at 1 verse 8, chapter 1 verse 8. He's a prisoner. He calls himself the Lord's prisoner. But, but uh, this is not like his other imprisonments, let's say, in the book of Acts, where uh, they might have been short-term. Um, we know that this also is not like 
the imprisonment later on in the book of Acts where he was under house arrest, where he has you know a good amount of freedom, this is much more serious. If you look there in verse 116, he refers to his chains. In 2.9, he says that he was bound with chains as a criminal. And then apparently it wasn't easy to find him. In 117, he says that his, his friend on this for us. He had to search him out earnestly in, in Rome, big city of Rome. And then eventually he found himself, you know, if you're under house arrest, you could just say to your friends, hey, you know, come over to Old Forest Road. You're going to find him right there. Like, come, let's hang out. I, there might be a soldier there, but at least we get to spend time together. No, on this course, he actually had to earnestly seek him out. And so it is entirely appropriate to think of aged Paul here, jail, fettered in some dark, cold, Roman prison. And in 413, chapter 4, verse 13, he asked Timothy to bring his cloak to him. Why is it finding us the cold there? From an earthly perspective, right, this is a bad situation. Paul seems to know where this is going. You look over, over there at chapter 4, verse 6. Go ahead and look over there. He says there, For I am already being poured out as a drink offering. That is a sacrifice. And the time of my departure has come. It already has. You see that there? It has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. He knows here that his earthly fight has come to a close. And soon he'll find himself lying down with all the other Christians who have gone before him. But let me be very clear here, just as Paul is, even though he faces that future, he is not without hope. He is not without hope. If you see there in 4.7 to 4.8, look there at 4.8, right? At 4.7 he says he kept the faith. And then you look there at, at 8, henceforth, from here on out, therefore, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his now, 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 we spent so much time looking at the history of the guy, because you, friend, will one day face the prospect of lying down with your forefathers. You, too, will leave some sort of legacy. But you realize that even right now, you are leaving a legacy. You might not have children. Maybe it's not your children who are watching, your children who are going to observe it. But no doubt it is those who are all around you watching you for what you live for, even right now. You're going to find yourself in Paul's exact same position. You might not be writing an epistle to the church. You might not even be writing a letter, but you will one day want to leave some sort of word to others about what life is really worth living for. That's why we spend so much time here looking at Paul's life. Because he is an example. He calls people to walk after me insofar as I walk after Jesus Christ. So right, we're looking at his life here. He wasn't back in jail on account of his Christian faith, as so many Christians were. At this point in time, Christians in Rome under the reign of Emperor Nero suffered tremendously. And it kicked off around 64 AD 
when there was a devastating fire in Rome. Now, all the, the, the citizens actually blamed Nero for starting the fire or ordering it or maybe starting it himself. I mean, he actually did end up building his palace on the section of the city where the fire was lit. But it seems like in order to deflect blame, history tells that Nero blamed the fire on Christians. Christians were already looked down on by many and suspect by the government. Just think of the Christians' allegiance, for example. If the emperor claims to be the supreme ruler and citizens are to swear their allegiance to him as the supreme ruler, basically on par with God's, well, how exactly is that going to go over on the Christians when they are the ones refusing to swear ultimate allegiance to the supposed supreme ruler? So they refuse, all the while giving their ultimate allegiance to King Jesus, to whom they would happily acknowledge that every ruler is accountable. That would not go over well for Christians, and it did not go over well for Christians. Another reason why the Christians there were looked down upon and suspect by the government is that they were, uh, they were misunderstood. Their traditions were misunderstood. For example, they were accused of cannibalism. So when we take the Lord's Supper tonight, which if you're a member of the church, I hope you are present as we as a church celebrate the Lord's Supper together, right? The, if, you, if they're hearing that Jesus is calling his people to, to, to uh, celebrate the Lord's Supper, to eat of him, this is my body, this is my blood, eat and drink of me, proclaiming my gospel and the hope that is in Christ until I return, right? They were so misunderstood that they were accused of immorality, cannibalism. Not only that, though, but they were accused of incest with these love feasts where possibly the Lord's Supper was actually celebrated. If these communities of people are having love feasts, right, people outside, they don't understand, so then they accuse the Christians of incest. So with this misunderstanding and all the more, it did not go well. The historian Tacitus, who lived in the first and second centuries and was alive at the time when Nero was persecuting Christians, this is what he wrote, right? This historical account goes back because he was alive at the time. This is what he says. Nero fixed guilt onto the Christians and inflicted the most exquisite tortures on a class hated for their abominations called Christians. And so an arrest was first made of all who confessed. Then upon their information, an immense multitude was convicted. Mockery of every sort was added to their deaths. Covered with skins of beasts, they were torn apart by dogs and perished. Or were nailed to the cross. Or were doomed to the flame. Just stop for, just stop for one moment here and imagine... Maybe how large this, quote, immense multitude was. As they were being rounded up and killed by wild animals. Or being lit up in the night to serve as human torches. All underneath government approval for being Christian. If you look there in 2 Timothy chapter 1, you see there why he is suffering. In 1.11, he said, I was appointed a preacher, an apostle, and teacher, really, of the gospel. This is why I suffer as I do. Paul, of course, was no ordinary Christian. He was a leader of Christians. And that's there in verse number one. He says, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus 
by the will of God. God himself had chosen Paul to serve in a very unique role here, a very unique role as an apostle, one who was charged by Jesus Christ to lay the foundation of the church after his resurrection. So Christ lives, or Christ the eternal Son, takes on flesh, lives this life here, he dies on the cross for the sins of all who would repent and believe, he rises from the dead, and so in his resurrection and his ascension, he pours out his very own spirit, empowering his church to go to the end of the earth, preaching and planting churches. He charges, right? This is once in history. He charges those believers and the apostles, the disciples, and others to lay the foundation of the church there. And that foundation is laid only once, the ministry of the apostles and others that God used to write scripture. In Acts chapter 9 and 15, we read that Christ appeared to Paul and appointed him for the special task, quote, to carry my name before the Gentiles, that is the non-Jews, the end of the earth, and kings and the children of Israel. It was for this task that he says in Galatians 1 that God had set him apart before he was born. It was for that task that God had called him by his grace. So he serves as an apostle to the church. Laying the foundation is a writing tons of scripture here in the New Testament. He was used in this a unique way as an apostle according to the will of God, chosen by God, set apart by God, and he wrote on the very authority of God as an apostle of Jesus. Charged by Jesus, so he writes, so he preaches on the authority of God. And here we have in this letter a formal transition from that generation of the apostles, right, laying that foundation, to the next generation. Now, when it comes to the church today, there is no office of capital A, apostle. There are only two offices in the New Testament church after the apostles, and those are elders or pastors, same office there, and then deacons. So in this church, we have elders or pastors, and then we have deacons. Uh, now, I recognize that some people call themselves apostles, but really there are no apostles in the New Testament sense today. The church foundation, once again, was laid once and for all by the apostles. And so we, even though we live in the 21st century, we are built upon the foundation that God had laid through their work and through the Word. And because we have their written documents here, the Word of God, the authoritative, inerrant Word of God, we already have, once again, what we need for life and doctrine. Thus, if someone comes to us saying, look, we have received actually new divine revelation apart from the word of God that is now binding upon all Christians everywhere, you ought to be suspect. You ought to be suspect. If you want to know the will of God, we are to look for the word of God. The two offices in the church, that is the elders and the deacons, that then there is no apostle that hears afresh the word of God that is binding upon all churches for today. For Paul, as an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, we have to ask the question, well, what exactly was his will for him? What was God's will for Paul the apostle? For what aim and for what purpose was he set apart? If you look at the passage there, it was for the purpose of preaching. For the purpose of spreading the gospel and laboring for, quote, look there, the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. The promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. See that there? He was an apostle of Christ Jesus about the promise of eternal life. 
for the salvation that is in Christ Jesus, the Son of God. Through his death on the cross, for the sins of all his people, and because of his new life that he lives as he was raised from the dead, we have this promise of life to all who would believe. That is really what is of first importance as an apostle. As he himself believed, he received his eternal life, and so he preaches his eternal life, and he wants everybody to the ends of the earth to know this eternal life. I want you to go over to 1 Corinthians, and you see that this is of first importance to him. This is what he spends his whole entire life preaching, and it is what he is spent preaching. Look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now I will remind you, brothers, of the gospel, the good news, the good news of Jesus. That he came, that he died on the cross for sin, so we wouldn't have, have to. So that he, that he rose from the grave, so that all who would believe on him would be raised to new life and experience this new spiritual life. All of that is implied in this gospel. I want to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I have preached unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. You see, that, that, that is what He holds of first importance, and it's exactly that that He needs Timothy to maintain as of first now, you might be hearing this when you're exploring Christianity or something like this, or new to Christianity, or young in your faith. And you might think, gosh, that seems really ironic. The eternal life that he possesses, for which, for which he labors, is costing him his earthly life. Does sound ironic to you? By the time of writing, he had labored long and hard for the gospel. He had gone on multiple missionary journeys as book of Acts records. He had done these missionary journeys, gone all around the Mediterranean world, preaching, planting churches, seeing God's grace and saving people. He certainly suffered for the gospel. St. Corinthians chapter 11, you go ahead and read that later on. It's like the classic summary of all that he, su that all that he suffered on account of the gospel. And at the time of this writing, 2 Timothy, at least the ESV scholars date this letter around 66, 67 A.D., as he was writing, he was very close to being brought outside the city and being beheaded on account of this gospel. Now again, if you're visiting with us and exploring Christianity, I think here at this kind of junction, people might think, this Paul is crazy. He's expending, he's losing his life for the promise of some life, all account of this Jesus guy. Let me just say, you know, if I could speak for Paul for just one moment here, I think he would actually agree with you. If the whole Jesus thing was false. He would agree with you if this Jesus thing was absolutely false. Paul said himself that if Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection were not real or did not happen or had no significance, Christians, quote, from Paul's own lips, are of all people the most We of all people would be the most of all to be pitied if the resurrection was not true. And Christians and non-Christians would be happy to agree to that. 
happy to. But of course, if you're visiting with us, once again, you find yourself here in a room full of people who not only appreciate this book as historical, as a trustworthy book, but we believe it. We believe that Christ came and that he, in fact, lived and that he died and then he rose again. And, friend, in all of that, there is that promise of life. Of course, to understand why in the world is there a promise of life, you have to understand why Jesus Christ came. This is what Paul himself is giving his whole entire life with. Friends, he came, Jesus came, the eternal Son of God came on a mission to save those who were condemned to die. They didn't have life ahead of them. The reason man was condemned to die was because of our own rebellion and sin against God, our very own maker and creator. He was good, all loving. He designed us to be in a perfect relationship with him. But instead, we know, as the Bible says, that all man rebelled. Adam and Eve rebelled, and certainly everybody from them are guilty of sin. We too have chosen to sin against God and instead live as if we ourselves are gods. But yet, though God had every right to judge men immediately for sin. Yet we deliver. And in his great love and in his mercy, he sends Christ, his eternal son, to take on flesh live the righteous life that was demanded upon us, to die on the cross for the sin, bearing the judgment and the wrath that we ourselves deserve for having sinned against him. He is then laid into the grave, and then on the third day he rises again, showing that death is no longer over his people. That is, for those who repent of their sins and believe. He accomplishes for us what we could never could never live a righteous life. So he accomplishes that for us. He gives his people what we lack. We lack righteousness, so he gives us his very own so that we might stand before the very presence of the righteous, loving God, being counted righteous, declared righteous, forgiven of our sins, and know eternal life with God mm-hmm. through Jesus Christ on account of Christ's blood. This is the gospel. That's why it is good news. It's why Paul spent his whole entire life from the time that he was converted in Acts chapter 9 until the end, until his death. He went around preaching Christ, calling all to know and taste this eternal life in Jesus Christ. By his grace, by his mercy, the grace of God, the mercy of God, and on turning to God, all who would repent and believe, including you, friend, can know this peace with God, this grace, this mercy. This is why he greets Timothy there. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, then mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. This simple greeting is on one hand simple, but on the other hand is absolutely remarkable. As his content changes and saves lives. Can you just imagine that? Paul himself, having received this eternal life, sits in prison Receiving persecution, that is not peaceful. But yet he's able, in the peace of God, to send this letter off to dear beloved to knowing probably that his life was going to end relatively soon, and saying grace and mercy and peace from God, the Father, and Christ Jesus, the true Lord and King, the Savior of all. It's remarkable. This content here, the grace, mercy, and peace that comes through Christ, changes. Saves lives. It is grace, mercy, and peace 
that is extended to all sinners from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. If you would repent of your sin and turn and trust that you will be saved to know this for yourself just as Paul does. You can see, friends, how if this is true, which of course I believe it is, Paul is willing to spend and be spent so others would know this eternal life of Jesus Christ for themselves. For the Christian and the service of God, that is victory. Right? To finish off life, even in the face of losing life, in service to the true king. That, friends, is worth it. You see that uh, this uh, YouTube channel called Worth It? Uh, you know, when they go around looking at, you know, three different foods in three different price points, and at the end of the video, they determine which one is worth it, the worth it winner. Friends, that's kind of silly, but, you know, we realize that we all in our flesh are looking around for things that are worth it. And here Paul tells us, he tells us definitively with all authority of, with God behind him, saying, this is the worth it winner to finish off your life in service to the one and only true King Jesus Christ. Not anything else that you can find in this world particularly. back on our lives and say that we too have fought the good fight. We have finished the race. We have kept the faith. And then so therefore, even in the fact that we lie down with our forefathers, we look forward to the crown of righteousness and eternal life. That's what Paul died for. That is in fact what he died for. Realize that we all live our lives for something. When you friends are going to die, Good to live for the idea, but in this day and age, when 
your families are ripping apart. People don't really care about marriage. People don't even care about getting married. People don't even mind, you know, not having children down into the future. Like, who decides what ideas we're living for? You want to live for an idea that's here today but gone tomorrow? And even where that idea is good, like marriage and family, those things are wonderful. I'm not knocking those things. Who do you think designs those things? Paul here, he lives for not the idea ultimately, but for the designer that is God himself. He lives for Jesus Christ, the one for whom all things were made, the one who deserves all glory, the one in whom there are eternal riches in Jesus Christ. And so we are designed to live for his name. We are designed to experience actually the riches that are in Jesus Christ. And we are designed to know him as father and his people as brothers and sisters. Friends, let me encourage you, if you want to know more about why the Christian lives for what he or she lives for and dies for, you can talk to people around you who brought you here. If you have been talked about Jesus Christ, let me encourage you to turn from your sin even now and know the forgiveness that is in Jesus Christ. Imagine being Imagine receiving this letter from his father in the faith, his mentor in the faith, strong in the faith until the very end. I think Paul knew that this younger disciple charged to pastor the flock in the city of, of Ephesus would not only find this encouraging to see him you know, persist in the faith, I think he knew that most people would be a little rattled. It would be a little bit rattled knowing that they are receiving the baton and now have to go at it in some sense by themselves without the older generation mentoring the younger. This brings us to point number two. What exactly is Paul going to tell him here as he opens the body of the letter? Point number two, encouraging the next generation. Encouraging the next generation. Look there at three to seven. He says, there I thank God whom I served as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now, I am sure, dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us the spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Three things that he encourages Timothy to think about. Three things in which he, three ways in which he encourages the next generation. First, Paul strengthens him with prayers and fatherly affection. Prayers and fatherly, fatherly affection there in verses 3 and 4. Paul is, is such the consummate leader here, right? He, he's the one in such a terrible situation. But yet here he is writing this letter, encouraging young Timothy, his beloved child. Of course, he means their beloved child in the faith. You know, uh, that's what he's called there, my true child of the faith, as First Timothy 1, 1 says. It may be that Timothy came to faith with his mother and grandmother in the city of Lystra, which is south-central Turkey. Paul there was on his second missionary journey, and then made his way to Lystra, as Acts chapter 14 records. And there he preaches the gospel as usual, he's planting churches, and then he continued on. But eventually, Paul and others returned back to Lystra in Acts chapter 16. Let's go ahead and turn over there. Uh, briefly. Isn't it so cool how we can take, let's say, Timothy, uh, the letters of Timothy, and then look historically and place them in the book of Acts? I think this is incredibly useful here. You look there at verse 1, Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, 
a son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was a Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Right, so it's at this point, Acts chapter 16, that Timothy comes underneath Paul's wing for what would be 15 years of solid partnership. For a decade and a half, Timothy partnered with Paul, going on missionary journeys together, preaching the gospel together, seeing God's grace save people together. Just imagine there the intimacy of relationship, true fellowship in the faith. Imagine that the true bond of brotherhood and partnership shared in this relationship here. I mean, I think my own mentor... I think of all the different cities we've been to and even the different countries that we were in at the same time. And I remember one time going on a trip with him to Australia where we served churches together, where we were, you know, talking about church health together, where we were talking to all sorts of stuff uh, to other Christians who wanted to know a little bit more. I mean, I have very pleasant memories there of my being on the same trip in all these different cities. So, so it must have been so much more with Paul and Timothy. Not only did they travel and minister to churches together, they had an ongoing ministry to these churches together. In many of Paul's letters, Timothy is right there with Paul. So much so that Paul says to such and such church, Paul and Timothy, greetings. Further, Paul then utilized Timothy as his own delegate, right? Paul, with the authority of God, sends Timothy to go and do this thing elsewhere. So Paul can say about, uh, let's say, 2 Timothy 3.10, go ahead and turn there. Paul trusts him so much. They, they have such a brotherhood together. They share in fellowship that they say, that he says, you, Timothy, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions, and my suffering. Timothy was Paul's trusted son. Trusted so much that he could look over at the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. I know we're turning around a lot, aren't we? But again, the reason why we're doing this is know Paul all the more. Know Timothy all the more. Because we are built, we stand on their shoulders. Look what he says there in Philippians chapter 2, verses 19 and 24. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. But they all seek their own interests, but not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him just as soon as I shall see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. He wrote that letter also from prison, uh, a house around. But you see that, that Timothy is his trusted son. But on the occasion of 2 Timothy here, uh, mentor and mentee are separate. Of course, separated because Paul had charged him to pastor the church in Ephesus, which was some 1,250 miles away from Rome, to the east. And though it is Paul that is in dire straits, sitting on what would be his death row, so he takes time to encourage Timothy. So Paul thanks God for him there in verse 3. I thank God for him, right? Remembering it before God, night and day, remembering Timothy's tears, even, and longing to see him. Now, we are not sure what incident he's talking about. We don't know when exactly Timothy shed these tears, and when Paul, we assume, also shed tears as well. We know from Acts chapter 20 that Paul went to Ephesus, and there he meets with the leaders there. 
He encourages uh, the, the elders there to continue steadfastly. And as he is saying bye, he's at this port of Ephesus. As he's saying bye, he knows, I know what lays ahead of me. It's further suffering. It's all bad news. And it's all for the sake of the gospel. But I'm willing to suffer that. And in Acts chapter 20, verses 36 to 38, as they're saying goodbye, they depart in Jesus. Maybe, we're not sure, maybe it was that occasion. Paul remembers seeing him part with fear to And then parting ways with tears. This whole situation says something about Timothy's spiritual fortitude, doesn't it? He is, in many ways, a spiritual, strong man even to take up the post. Now, some people think Timothy was a bit sensitive. So, for example, Paul writes about his tears, right? Some people don't cry, but others do. Um, and not only that, though, but maybe he was known to be a little bit timid. Maybe he was known to be a little bit fearful, right? Verse 7 says, for God gave the spirit not of fear. Maybe he's fearful. And then again, uh, some think that he was a bit sickly. Verse Timothy 5, you know, Paul says, look, I know your stomach is weak. I want you to do this. But friends, even if those things did mark him, it doesn't negate the fact that he already had the spiritual strength to be in the role of pastor and then to assume the role as this apostolic delegate taking over leadership from the Apostle Paul. Friends, that requires a certain spiritual fortitude to share in Paul's sufferings. That's exactly what Paul's writing him to do. Right? Share in my sufferings. Do not be ashamed of the gospel, nor of be his prisoner, but share in them. letter is a call to remain steadfast and fight and to suffer for the gospel. We see that there in 2 Timothy chapter 12. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words. Look there also at verse 8 of chapter 1. Therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord nor be his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Of course, this call doesn't originate with Paul. This is Christ's call. Not just a pastor, but to you, Christian. Matthew 16, verses 24 and 25, this is what it reads. This is what Jesus says. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will fight. Paul was so familiar with this call, and the reality and the reward of his eternal life. That's why he brings Timothy to God before prayer, night and day, with the affection of a father. Because I wonder if you, in your life and in your words, if they show yourself know the fact of eternal life, the reality of the promise so well that you even now are expending your life for that gospel. Does your life, your words reflect that fact? And they reflect that it's a joy to take up your cross and follow him. Does your life reflect the fact that you trust in him despite persecution? and suffering, and all of the ups and downs. Certainly there are ups and downs, and certainly following after Jesus can be hard. But friends, if you were to look back at the trajectory of your life, despite the ups and downs, would you see that steady trajectory of moving to Christ, following after Him? Or do you realize
realize that here is that Paul is finishing off his life. He certainly struggled. He certainly struggled with despair, as 2 Corinthians says. But he too, he would be able to see that steady trajectory that's to get. And God is using his life to encourage others. Not only Timothy, the church there, but us as well. The second thing Paul focuses Timothy's attention on, second thing Paul focuses Timothy's attention on as he's encouraging him, is the most important thing, that is faith in Jesus Christ. Faith in Jesus Christ. It's not just his own faith, right? It's also the faith of his immediate forebears. You look there, uh, he talks about his own ancestors. I thank God in my service. My ancestors, he serves God with a clear conscience. Verse 4, I remember your tears. I long to see that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith. A faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. How awesome is it that here his mother and his grandmother are actually made? How often do you mothers think that your labor is in, you know, basically obscurity? And let's be honest, it is. As many of our lives are. Generations down might not necessarily remember your particular labors on a particular day. About how you so faithfully raised up that little one in your house right now. Here, the fact that Lois and Eunice are in Scripture is an, is an amazing encouragement. They were the ones, if you look over at 2 Timothy chapter 2.14, we should assume that they were the ones who taught him the Scriptures. You look there at 3.14, uh, 3.14, but as you continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it. I think there is a reference actually to Lois' grandmother and then Eunice, his very own mother. What an encouragement for Timothy to be pointed back not only to his faith, but to the faith that his mother owned, the faith that his grandmother owned. I mean, when I think of my own mother, I am encouraged. I'm so indebted incredibly to my own Christian mother for so many reasons. She's the one who taught me about Christ when young. I remember when I was six years old, she told me that I was a sinner. I'm sure that there were plenty of opportunities for her to tell me that I was a sinner. I remember that she told me that she was putting me to bed that I was a sinner, but I could be forgiven. Forgiven if I cry out to Jesus for forgiveness of sin. And not only that, though, but she made efforts to teach me the scripture, read this devotional from Little Visits with God. And I remember when I saw that in my 20s, I thought, and I saw that book, and I remember that's the same book that my mom used 20 years ago in regular family devotion. To my knowledge, she was the one who prayed for the most for me and enlisted others to do that as well. And she finished her race and was steadfast. So when I think about finishing my own race, naturally I think to my very own mother. I think to Melanie's own mother, those who have gone before, those who have finished the race depending upon the Lord. And I am encouraged to follow their footsteps as well. Mothers, I pray that you are encouraged to live out your faith in Jesus Christ. And therefore to instruct your children in the scriptures, even from when they are young. What a blessing, a privilege, a responsibility is to instruct them in the ways of when they are instructive in the ways of the Lord, when you all rise in your daily rhythms, when you go about your lives, and when you put them to bed, all the while entrusting them and your teaching to the Lord, who may today or tomorrow, or even after you have breathed your last, grant your children the deeper and regeneration by the grace of Christ. It is true, your labors might be in relative obscurity. Your efforts might be met with tired eyes and disinterest and even derision and despise. 
lets us know that your efforts, your Father sees them. Your Father in heaven delights in your work of faithfulness as you, sister, carry on that work that God has charged Christian parents to do, that is to evangelize their children. Just as God used Lois and Eunice to raise up Timothy for the early church, so God may use you in your faithfulness to help raise up the next generation of Timothy's, so to speak, or Phoebe's, as we see in Romans, or Priscilla's in the book of Acts, a generation of godly men and godly women who are happy to receive the baton and so labor for the building up of the church to the glory of God. Just as Timothy's mother and grandmother possessed faith in the Lord, so Paul is convinced, right? You see there in the verse. That that same faith, Timothy owns, that same faith dwells in him as well. And it's on this faith here, to think logically about this flow of the, the letter here, it is on this mention of faith that the whole entire letter turns. Because it is a faith that Timothy not only possesses, but it is a faith that he must defend, a faith that he must preach, a faith that he must guard. There's no small task here for Timothy bears this way. So how exactly will young Timothy do this? The third encouragement. The third encouragement. He must do it in dependence upon God. Look there at verses 6 and 7. Here's a summary. Look there at that summary. Depend on God. Specifically, he says there, fan to flame the gift of God. We see what Paul's getting at. After encouraging personally about his faith in Jesus Christ, Paul then eyes what is necessary for Timothy to fulfill his ministry. And he says there, fan into flame the gift of God which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Now this is probably a reference to when Timothy was charged to take over as pastor of the church there. There's a laying on of hands and prayer. We see in the book of Acts in a way of like commissioning people charged with a specific task. They are, their gifts are assessed. Then they are commissioned. They are charged. And here this is what it seems to be going on with Timothy. It's not like this gift came supernaturally through the hand of Paul as if it's the laying on of the hand that actually transfers this gift. That's not right at all. We know that God gives us all gifts for the building up of the church here. But we see here the, the gift is all about the propagation of the gospel. It's all about the continuance of this teaching of Jesus Christ. Look there at 4, 2, 3, 5. Let me turn there. 4, 2, 3, 5. He says there, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. They will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into this. As for you, always be sober-minded and enduring in your suffering. Do the work of an evangelist for your ministry. How is he to bear that weight and do it successfully? Well, he is to depend on God. He is to fan and to flame God's gift to him. Personally, I find this incredibly strange. If you're a leader, you know that uh, we all struggle at various times. We rely on ourselves. We rely on ourselves, whether you are a young leader or an older leader. But here it's really strange. He's just telling, he's just telling Timothy, depend on the Lord. So Timothy, he knows that there are mounting issues. You have false teachers, which we're going to talk about. We have people turning away to ungodliness, and maybe some others are tempted to follow. And here he says, trust in the Lord. Personally, Timothy, he faces the prospect of not having Paul his mentor. As we know, Paul would, would uh, probably return back to Ephesus no longer. 
What is he to do? He is to depend on the Lord. You see there, if he's dependent on himself, there's a lot of reason to fear. But look, Paul tells him, look, God didn't give us a spirit of fear. Verse 7, he gave us a spirit of power, of love, and self-control. Now, love is obvious. Right? He has to deal with people. He's supposed to love them for Christ's sake. If he doesn't love God's sheep, what becomes of teaching? What becomes of any gift? If it's not for love out of Christ's sake, it seems more built up. Self-control, in the letter we're going to see about how the God, that there are ungodly people who are turning away. They were loving the world. They do not have self-control, but they used to. So he used to have self-control, but then he used power. It has to do there with fulfilling their, his ministry in Jesus Christ. In Ephesians, Paul prays that the church would be strengthened by God's power to know God's love for themselves. Here, this idea of power, Paul prays that that Paul, or sorry, Paul prays that Timothy would suffer by the power of God. There in verse eight, share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Think about this power that undergirds this persistence and steadfastness. So Paul says in Second Timothy four five, as to you always be so reminded, your suffering due to the work of evangelists fulfill your. God has given us all spirits of power, of love, and of self-control, and it is upon him that we are to trust. We're going to look about how Paul is to depend on God for all of these things as we continue to walk through the book of 2 Timothy. But in it all, he's supposed to have the grand aim of living for the eternal life that is in Jesus Christ. We crank open this book, we see what's of first importance to Paul there. He lives for Jesus Christ and eternal life found in him. So he encourages Timothy and us to have those same very things as of first importance. What is of first importance in your life? What are you willing to live for and breathe your last breath? The Christian is always the